Deep in the Southwest, north of what's now Santa Fe, New Mexico, 26-year-old Thomas J. Beal and his band of buddies set out to hunt game, grizzlies, and buffalo. It was an early spring morning in 1818, and daylight glimmered on the ravine around a temporary base camp. Which caused the explorers to notice a bright shimmer on the hillside. Suddenly, the radiant glow streaked upward along the cliff like a vein. As they walked towards the shine, they wondered what it could be. The hunters didn't want to get their hopes up, but deep down, they had a hunch it might be precious metal. Trembling at the prospect of instant wealth, Beale was immediately summoned. And from what they saw, it appeared they'd spotted gold. 30 years before American explorers would venture west for the gold rush. And as wild excitement spread throughout the camp, the hunters realized their lives were about to change forever. Or so they hoped. By the summer of 1819, they'd quarried thousands of pounds of gold, silver, and other valuable objects. Yet the miners knew with such an immense treasure came immense danger. Concerned for the safety of their loot, Thomas Beale racked his brain for a safe, unassailable location. None came to mind. So he carted the fortune back home, all the way to Virginia. And for the modern-day treasure hunters that show up in the Blue Ridge Mountains, there may be reason to believe Beale's treasure is still buried deep beneath the hilly pines. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is the first of two episodes on the Beale Papers, a trio of secret codes concealing where one of the largest treasures in American history may be buried. When they were released to the general public in 1885, the Beale Papers kicked off America's longest and costliest treasure hunt in history. This episode will explore the history of the papers and how Thomas Beale's cryptic codes have kept fortune seekers hooked for decades. And we'll see how several code-breaking enthusiasts have fared on their expeditions to locate the riches. Next time, we'll examine three conspiracy theories about the ciphers. We'll ask if the National Security Agency discovered the treasure and kept it hidden, if it's still buried somewhere in Virginia or elsewhere, and if the ciphers might have been an elaborate hoax all along. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. 
I know for me in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Thomas Jefferson Beale's legacy is shrouded in mystery. When he's mentioned in the occasional textbook, he's described as a man of honor, a mad genius, or a downright scoundrel. Historically, it's been notoriously difficult to pin down who Beale really was, but there are a few things we can guess at with some confidence. He was believed to have been born in 1792, the same year President George Washington was elected for a second term. He supposedly grew up in Fincastle, Virginia, about 60 miles from Lynchburg. Beale's upbringing was privileged. His family was said to be popular and had a great reputation amongst their neighbors. According to some sources, his older brother was an upstanding, successful entrepreneur. He kept an eye out for Thomas and tried to teach his younger brother the principles of business. Yet Thomas Beale had no interest. He wasn't seeking a quiet life of contracts and desk work. As a budding renegade, he wanted to break boundaries and go beyond his small world in search of a wild adventure. And true to form, his rebellious nature was what forced him to leave Virginia. Legend has it, in the spring of 1817, 25-year-old Beale tried to seduce a woman who was in a relationship with his neighbor. He had long garnered the attention of women all over town with his charm and apparently was undeterred. So, as was often the case in those days, Beale and his neighbor allegedly settled the matter in a duel of pistols. When the two met in a secluded field outside of town, they took their positions and readied for the draw. In an instant, each man turned to face his opponent, then fired his gun. It was Beale's jilted neighbor who fell to the ground, leaving Beale certain he'd killed his opponent. And so, without skipping a beat, he fled the scene. Beale feared if he stayed in Fincastle, he'd be imprisoned or worse. To avoid being prosecuted by local authorities, he soon signed up for a recreational gaming trip. The outfit would venture to the uncharted Wild West. 
For the young sportsman, the promise of adventure, peril, and sights unseen was more than enough to sell him. Plus, it would give his reputation time to die down in Virginia. As Beale put it, he'd journey to the great untamed plains of the Southwest with 30 affluent, well-educated men. The plan for the trip was to shoot big game and take in the wonders of the West. The men would eat and trade off their game, and in exchange, indigenous people would offer them ammunition, supplies, or money. By no means did the Virginians actually need to barter for goods or cash, but it seemed to be a part of the expedition that they looked forward to. In April 1817, Beale and the 30 other young pioneers left Virginia. Later accounts would indicate that the party planned to be gone for at least two years. By May, the group had reached St. Louis in the Missouri Territory, the last metropolitan stop on their itinerary. With a population of over 4,000, the town was still burgeoning, but the men appreciated the comforts of warm hotel beds and a well-stocked market. St. Louis was also where Beale would reportedly cross paths with Missouri Territory Governor William Clark. The politician was famous for having co-led the U.S. military mission to survey the Louisiana Purchase and the Pacific Northwest. Over the next two weeks, Beale and his companions solidified their plan for the rest of the trek. They defined each man's role in the party per military standards, as they felt this strict sense of order would help ensure their survival in unfamiliar territory. It's also believed that the explorers landed on their destination of Santa Fe during this stop. The land was rife with buffalo, and the terrain there seemed more manageable than the highlands of Colorado. Plus, winter would be milder. Meanwhile, the group restocked hunting and trading provisions. Once they left St. Louis, they'd be entering unknown land. They likely purchased more food, knives, kettles, blankets, rifles, ammo, and tents. Though the outfit was heading west for fun, they still needed to take their trip seriously if they intended to survive. A few more members were also added to the party in St. Louis, hired for their expertise as seasoned expedition guides. They would be crucial for navigating along the Missouri River and over the perilous Rocky Mountains. With supplies and guides ready, the expanded unit was ready to brave the unknown. On May 19, 1817, they left St. Louis. And faced treacherous conditions. For months, Beale's band trekked through wind, rain, and hail. Wolves combed the terrain for carcasses. The journey was remarkably dangerous, but it seems no lives in the party were lost. By autumn, they'd made their way across the Midwest, and by November, they'd reached the untamed lands of what's now Colorado. In roughly 200 days, the group had traveled farther than most people of the time could even imagine. Throughout this stretch of the journey, Beale's group likely encountered several indigenous peoples with whom they would have traded and possibly even formed alliances. Perhaps they hoped that, should they meet any adversaries down the line, the relationships they forged with the tribes might act as protection. Yet for the Virginians, any sense of comfort was fleeting. A harsher winter approached, and the landscape became too dangerous at the high Colorado altitudes. 
To move south was to move towards safety, so they packed up once again. And once the men reached Santa Fe in early December, it was as if they'd reached the respite they'd been dreaming of. Through the rest of that winter and into the spring, the men hunted elk, buffalo, mule deer, black bear, and bighorn sheep. Eating well was just a taste of the fortune to come. One spring morning, the group followed a herd of buffalo into a ravine over 250 miles north of Santa Fe. They knew they'd wake to a bounty of game if they played their cards right, so the men set up camp for the night. As a bonus, the cliff's high walls also protected them from the harsh wind. And the following morning, while most men slept, one member of the group spotted a fateful shimmer. On the hillside, a bright light gleamed from the rock and climbed yards higher, nearly to the top of the massive cliff. It was a deep vein of gold, and when the explorers informed Beale, he knew he'd be able to get to it. Coming up, the men hide their treasure. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. In the spring of 1818, 26-year-old Thomas J. Beale and his band of hunters followed a herd of buffalo into a ravine in modern-day Colorado. Once there, the men noticed something they hadn't been expecting to find. Deep veins of gold and silver embedded in a cliff. It was just mere feet from their camp. It was a breathtaking discovery. Nearly three more decades would pass before the famous California Gold Rush of 1848. However promising spotting gold was, though, there was a temporary setback. There wasn't anyone to ask about mining techniques and best practices. Beale and his men would have to forge their own ways to extract the precious metals. And their methods were primitive at best. Without a reliable water supply near their camp, typical techniques like panning, when gold is separated from soil by shaking the deposit in a pan in water, were out. Instead, over the next year, Beale's men likely relied on the snow and rain of the coming seasons. 
It helped illuminate any gold hidden amongst the soil of the local hillsides. As precipitation and melt runoff ran down, the dirt washed away to reveal precious metals. Another, though admittedly less reliable method that the men potentially employed was the blanket technique. They dump findings from the hillside into the fabric, then quickly lift the blanket from its corners, sending the material into the air. The hope was that the wind might blow away the lighter stones and leave only the heavier rocks that contained gold and silver, but rarely did much gold end up in the blanket. In fact, the technical issues of mining were often daunting. Not only was the process time-consuming, the men realized it would take years of hard work to extract substantial riches from the land. The tools could also be expensive. Add in the stress of sparse workers and the threat of constant attack, and Beale's men were nearly always on edge. The fact that Beale's operation was actively unearthing valuable metals made the group a prime target for attack. In the dead of night, fears were high that those hoping to raid the project would show up shooting their pistols into the air. On occasions when robbers did catch Beale's men by surprise, the camp would have been ransacked. In addition to the gold, the group's horses, mules, cattle, and sheep were at risk of being taken since they held substantial value in the remote landscape. Without any local police force or physical protection from raiders, aside from their own weapons, Beale's men made do with temporary solutions. They buried their ammunition store and hid their wealth under logs, in tree trunks, and within tin pots and pans. Still, constant mining meant the group was sitting on a growing stock, one that they were running out of options to protect. Soon, the time came to consider transporting their precious cargo to a safer location. By the summer of 1819, the group agreed the fortune should be taken back to Virginia, and Thomas Beale himself would be the one to do it. The men believed that back east, they might be able to find a responsible, trustworthy guardian for their riches. A temporary holding point near Lynchburg, a cave in Bedford County, would keep the treasure until a permanent, secure home was set. To scout the cave, Beale set out with a few comrades and a train of wagons and mules. After a long journey home, Beale was back in Virginia before the end of 1819, with the loot in tow. When Beale arrived with the wagons, he found a safe place to store his treasure for the time being. However, Beale knew he couldn't leave it there for long, so he went out to scout their chosen cave. Yet when he finally got there, he was disappointed to find it lacked both remoteness and security. Lots of area farmers used it to store their equipment and feed. It was far too accessible and would never work. Beale would have to search for a different hiding spot for his treasure. Morning after morning, Beale headed out to different corners of the woody Blue Ridge Mountains, and he soon discovered an untouched parcel of forest. He decided it was where he'd bury the first portion of the treasure. He'd stash it in a modest plot, no bigger than a grave. Beale hoped that he might be able to secure the first haul, then return west to transport a second batch of gold. But there was a looming concern. 
Given the treacherous landscape and threats of bandits and wild animals, it wasn't guaranteed that Beale would survive more trips between Virginia and the wilds of the West. As a failsafe, Beale decided he'd leave a treasure map for his fellow miners. If anything happened to him, they'd be able to return back east and unearth their spoils. Beale wasn't the average adventurer, though, so the map certainly wasn't average either. It listed the gold's coordinates in cryptic cipher texts. When decoded, these numerical sequences would reveal where the fortune was stored. The first two codes are referred to as B1 and B2. Each fits on its own page. While B1 indicated the exact coordinates of the vault, B2 inventoried the contents of the prize. Yet even creating the coded map still left Beale with another dilemma. Who he could entrust the ciphers with? And since he didn't know anyone off the top of his head, he locked them into an iron crate, which he'd hold onto for the time being. Sometime in 1820, Beale traveled back to Santa Fe. Once he reunited with his men, he proposed the idea of a protector for the box. This person would serve as a reliable executor of their newfound fortune. Because without someone to guard the box and the ciphers, the treasure was as good as lost. The miners agreed. They too wanted to safeguard the fortune for their relatives, should anything ever happen to them. With that, Beale opened the crate up once more and added a third cipher, called B3. It detailed who the treasure should be allocated to in case it was found. It took nearly two years, but in 1821, Beale had returned east with another batch of loot. And by the time he finished burying it, he'd reportedly laid a total of 2,921 pounds of gold and 5,100 pounds of silver in the ground. At just over 8,000 pounds, the treasure was roughly equal to the weight of a hippopotamus and worth over $60 million in today's money. Understandably, Beale wanted to find a faithful trustee to watch over it, and fast. While in Lynchburg that winter, he kept an eye out for who might fit the bill for a suitable guardian. And when the town's own innkeeper, Robert Morris, offered to house him, Beale got an inkling he'd found his man. Not only was Morris kind and honest, the word around town was that he was a fair businessman. By the spring of 1822, Beale was sure Morris could be entrusted with the ciphers. In two letters, he asked the innkeeper to guard the metal box that held the papers and instructed him to preserve the crate for 10 years, should none of his fellow miners return to claim it. Then, if and only if no one with authority from Beale returned to take the box, would Morris be entitled to open it. If that time came, Morris was granted a few responsibilities. After deciphering the messages, he could deliver the funds to the miners next of kin and keep a significant percentage of the riches for himself. Without hesitation, Morris accepted. He was even on board for the caveat to Beale's offer. The cipher's key would be given to someone else. That way, even if Morris opened the box early, he couldn't steal the treasure. 
As an extra measure of safety, Morris would have no idea of the person's identity, nor would he be able to decrypt the codes without this person's help. Without that key, the ciphers were useless. Ten years came and went, but Thomas Beale never returned. And as Morris waited patiently, it became increasingly clear that someone may never send word of what happened to Beale or any of his men. The treasure might be his for the taking. Coming up, the Beale papers stump the nation's best minds. Now back to the story. By 1822, the mining treasure of Thomas Beale had been concealed within a hiding spot somewhere in Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains. The crate containing the ciphers to find them sat with Lynchburg's innkeeper, Robert Morris. Yet after 10 years, no one came knocking on Morris's door to claim the treasure. There was no news of Beale's whereabouts or his death. Not even the mysterious friend with the key to the ciphers ever showed up. Thirteen more years would pass as Morris contemplated what to do with the mysterious old metal box. And finally, in 1845, he broke it open. Just as Beale had indicated, inside were pages of nonsensical number sequences. But without the key, it was all gibberish. Guilt had largely fueled Morris's urge to open the box. He'd spent years thinking about the miners' families. He was desperate to give them their fortunes. But as time passed, and Morris tried futilely to decode the ciphers without the key, he feared he'd never succeed. For years, Morris worked through his confusion and frustration alone. He kept the contents a complete secret— It was only at the bridge of quitting in 1862 that he finally shared the papers with an anonymous friend. In the interest of clarity, we'll refer to this friend as Pete. Perhaps needing a break from his decades-long challenge and the burden of solving the puzzle, Morris handed off the pages to Pete. But just a year later, Morris died. Which left Pete with the task of unlocking the secret of Beale's ciphers, And for the next two decades, he tried doggedly. Eventually, Pete lucked into a source that would help him decipher at least one of the three cryptograms. According to some stories, Pete had been circling back to Beale's full name, Thomas J. Beale. Perhaps he guessed the middle initial stood for Jefferson. And then, it wouldn't be much of a leap to say whom Beale might have been named after, like the third president of the United States, Thomas Jefferson. It was a stretch, but it's possible Pete figured since Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, maybe that was the key he needed. Miraculously, his hunch worked. The Declaration functioned as a basic substitution cipher. Soon, Pete discovered every number in Beale's sequence lined up with a corresponding letter in the Declaration. Here's how it worked. If Beale wrote the number six, the decoder looked at the first letter of the sixth word in the key. For example, let's take the sentence, when in the course of human events. The sixth word is events, and the first letter of that word is E. So when Beale created it, he wrote down E, 
then moved to the following number in the cipher. One by one, Pete made his way through B2, substituting Beale's numbers with the declaration's corresponding letters. And the result was astounding. It was an inventory of the treasure. When completed, the sequence read, quote, I have deposited in the county of Bedford, Virginia, in an excavation or vault six feet below the surface of the ground, the following articles, belonging jointly to the parties whose names are given in number three herewith. Pete was thrilled. It was proof there was treasure somewhere in Bedford County. Yet there was one glaring problem. Nobody could figure out how to read Cipher 3. Unlike B2, the declaration didn't solve the first and third ciphers. This meant that the exact coordinates of the treasure listed in B1 and its recipients listed in B3 remained a mystery. The joy of a partially solved puzzle wore off. Pete was so defeated that by 1884, he revealed the secret of Beale's cryptograms to another person. Now, a proprietor named James B. Ward was tasked with the responsibility of the uncracked codes. Ward's intentions weren't as sterling as Pete's or Robert Morris's, though. After acquiring Beale's pages, he bound the contents into a pamphlet. Then, in 1885, he had the books printed to sell to the public for 50 cents a pop. Whatever hopes Ward had to get rich quick, though, went up in flames, literally. Before he could carry out his master plan, a hellish fire broke out at the printing plant. All but a few copies of the Beale pamphlet were devoured by the blaze. However, the remaining copies did garner some local attention, enough to cause a collective curiosity. News of the legend of Beale's treasure spread across the East Coast. And from 1885 on to this day, thousands of amateur and professional codebreakers have tried to solve Beale's remaining ciphers. Cryptanalysts have tried every trick in the book, dissecting the sequences and investigating potential keys, all to find that famed treasure. But even with modern technology, the two ciphers remain unsolved. Even traveling to Virginia hasn't given much hope to the buccaneers, mathematicians, and treasure seekers who hope to unearth the treasure. Metal detectors, shovels, picks, and explosives have failed to reveal Beale's treasure. Still, the prospect that it's out there, somewhere, keeps hopeful scavengers coming back. No one is quite ready to give up on the search, especially when the estimated value could be worth more than $60 million. In more recent decades, cryptographers have tried to revisit the ciphers with the same mindset that Pete had when he first discovered the connection between the Declaration of Independence and B2. Similarly, they've referenced the Constitution, the Magna Carta, and Shakespeare's plays for clues. Analysts have also combed through other timely documents, like the Star-Spangled Banner and details of the Louisiana Purchase. Others have tried to find Beale's riches on their own, perhaps more simple terms. Take one hunter who was a Virginia Supreme Court justice. He regularly surveyed Bedford County by bicycle. Another treasure seeker also made her reputation with locals. In the early 1980s, 
Marilyn Parsons was a Pennsylvania woman convinced that Beale's riches might be stashed in an old cemetery. In fact, she was so sure that she cashed in her disability payment to make the trip. And when she made it to Virginia, she paid a construction company to borrow their backhoe digger to tear up the graveyard. All that was unearthed, though, were some old bones. And unsurprisingly, breaking ground in a church cemetery was enough to get Ms. Parsons arrested on the spot. With all this action, it's no wonder the area surrounding Bedford County is rarely quiet. Year after year, different groups of treasure hunters arrive to comb through the mountains in search of Beale's treasures. At one point, there was even a dedicated society of believers. From the late 1960s through the 1980s, the Beale Cipher Association, or BCA for short, was committed to cracking the remaining codes. During those years, members gathered for conferences to share their ideas and stories. Many had experienced close calls and failures while hunting for the treasure in Bedford County. Among the BCA's 200 or so members, several were honorable and distinguished computer experts, esteemed specialists in their fields, like the Sperry Univac Director of Computer Sciences and Foxborough Labs Head of Research attended with great excitement. Over the decades, other interested parties came from agencies with equal clout. There were individuals who worked for the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency, like ex-CIA agent Carl Nelson Jr. Yet despite his honorable work deciphering communist codes in Berlin, Nelson still couldn't solve Beale's B-1 and B-3. Even utilizing every type of deciphering device possible didn't help the BCA come closer to unraveling the numerical clues of the papers. Custom computer software was unable to decrypt the puzzles accurately, because the fact remains, the ciphers are missing their key. With the BCA now dissolved, the fate of the Beale papers and the treasure they might hold has been left to amateur sleuths and history enthusiasts. And though it's a tall order to head out to the Blue Ridge Mountains without much to go on, treasure hunters still do. And we can only reason that they're seeking the same thrill that pushed Thomas Beale to leave Virginia back in 1817. To them, the fortune they might find, however puzzling, is still worth chasing. Next time, we'll discuss the conspiracy theories that have emerged from the Beale Papers and their possible location. Like conspiracy theory number one, the National Security Agency actually found the treasure in the 1930s and has been keeping it a secret for decades. Or conspiracy theory number two, the Beale fortune is still up for grabs somewhere in America, perhaps deep in central Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains. And finally, conspiracy theory number three. Beale's ciphers have always been an elaborate hoax meant to keep scavengers hunting for a treasure that doesn't exist. Accounting for inflation, the current value of Beale's treasure could be worth more than $60 million. For those addicted to the search, perhaps their faith and effort will indeed someday pay off.
Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. For more information on the Beale Papers, we found coverage by the online magazine Mental Floss particularly helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by John Levinson, with writing assistance by Ben Hanani and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder, we'll journey through the many reasons people disappear. Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.